Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. Today, my conversation is with Dr. Katie Ambrose, and we talk about uh, her article, Unlocking the Past, William Lee and the Rodenbostel Horn at Mount Vernon, which is in the February 2021 issue of the Horn Call. And if you've not had the opportunity to pick up that February issue and take a look at both her article and uh, all of the other great content in in the February uh, Horn Call, I encourage you to do that either digitally or in hard copy. We talk about a lot of really fun and interesting things uh, today, but also a lot of really serious kinds of things. Uh, I hope that uh, you find the balance of those uh, interesting and engaging. Uh, as always, it's it's such a joy and a pleasure to, to do these uh, interviews with such a uh, interesting group of people uh, in, in the horn world. Uh, I want to mention a couple of things um, to look forward to uh, this summer. My uh, my interview with uh, Dr. Ambrose was recorded several months back, but it's, it's coming out now on May 15th. And uh, looking ahead to, at least in, in the United States, the end of many of our uh, teaching uh, obligations for the spring semester, uh, it's always a very busy time but it's, a, it's an enjoyable and, and fun time as well. Things coming up related to the IHS this summer. Make sure that you have IHS 53, uh, which will be a completely digital symposium uh, this summer um, in August. Uh, IH, IHS 53.com is the website, and you can find out lots of information about all of the various presentations, performances, both live stream and pre-recorded happening there. Uh, I also want to mention the May issue of the Horn Call is now out. And if you've not yet received your hard copy, it should be coming very soon in the mail. Or if you subscribe to the electronic only copy, you can, of course, access those at hornsociety.org. I'm very much looking forward to uh, another really special publication of the IHS, a 50th anniversary book celebrating celebrating uh, 50 years of the International Horn Society, 50 years of the Horn Call. Dr. Jeff Snedeker from Central Washington University and who is also on the IHS uh, Advisory Council will be uh, has been heading up that, that project, and I, I got to speak with him, uh, which you'll hear in a future podcast episode, hopefully coming out very soon. Uh, it's just it's looking like it's just going to be a fantastic retrospective of, of the IHS's last uh, 50 years, as well as taking a look at what, what else is going to come in, in the next 50 years. So uh, without further ado and uh, without further delay, let's get to my interview with Katie Ambrose. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit about um, where you are and what, what kind of uh, teaching and performing you're doing. It's, it's, you have a very um, uh, illustrious pedigree. You've, you've done a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of playing, a lot of teaching in a lot of awesome places and studied with a lot of awesome people. Um, and uh, you've been doing some great stuff. I've really enjoyed uh, reading your article that's in the February uh, 2021 Horn Call. So maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm actually coming to you today from Wilmington, Delaware, which is not where I live, but I play in the Delaware Symphony and we're actually performing our first concert of the season this Friday. Um, so I'm in my hotel room 
but but normally I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I teach at the University of Virginia. Um, I got that job in 2015 while I was still working on my doctorate at Temple. Um, so my first year actually of teaching at UVA, I was living in Charlottesville and living in Philadelphia, and I was a full-time student at Temple. I would take my classes and then I would take the train down and I would do my teaching and then I would take the train back up and have more classes and rehearsals. Um, but that, that was only a year, thank goodness. So, yeah, so I've been at, at UVA since 2015. Um, my article that's in the Horn Call is actually kind of related to my my time in, in Charlottesville. Um, in the fall of 2017 was when that Unite the Right white supremacist rally happened in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I had only been living there you know, full time for one year and was still getting to know the town. Um, and I was actually out of town for performances while that was happening. And um, I was very, very concerned for my family's safety. I had six month old twins at home mm -hmm. who I was, um, yeah, I was, I was terrified and um, yeah, I live a half a mile from campus. The The march that was happening was happening less than a quarter of a mile from my house. And I had this this moment of, of realizing that I, as a middle-class white person, am incredibly privileged by not having that experience until I was in my 30s. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of my friends and, and colleagues who are people of color had had that experience while they were still children, that that, that experience of terror and fear um, of being afraid for their safety. So I, in a, you know, uh, a fit of passion, I suppose, when I Googled, um, oh, I should say the University of Virginia was founded by Thomas Jefferson, and it's mm -hmm. Monticello is just across the, the highway. So I, I Googled or internet search and just to, you know, how could I relate my experience to how this had all happened and Thomas Jefferson and slavery and French horn and all these different Google topics. And, um, and I found a letter that Thomas Jefferson had written to a man called Giovanni, Giovanni Fabroni. And in that letter, he asks for um, Giovanni Fabroni was at that point in Paris. Mm -hmm. Fabroni was Italian, but he was in Paris at that point. And in the letter, he requests that Fabroni send him to indentured servant horn players, mm -hmm. or that he help him procure horn players mm -hmm. in some in a, you know in some way um and that would be we can extrapolate that what he was trying to put together was a band of harmony music mm -hmm. which would have been you know and that would have been the the popular music for um certainly the aristocracy that he would have been hanging out with in paris the jefferson mm -hmm. would have been hanging out with paris um and it's it's certainly possible that jefferson brought this practice to the United States or the colonies, but it, it more it's more than likely that it was uh, it was happening 
far before, like much before then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I said, okay. And I, I contacted Monticello and that was a dead end because nothing ever came of that request. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I decided to look at other founding fathers and um, I found that George Washington, not only did he have an, an enslaved huntsman who played the horn, that there is a horn at Mount Vernon that exists and that the huntsman was his most trusted uh, body servant. He served mm-hmm. beside him during the entire Revolutionary War. He was his essentially his bodyguard we would think of him as being his like bagman and bodyguard mm-hmm. um for a good chunk of his of of washington's life and into his first term um as a president so and his name was william lee right and william lee yep. yeah and that was a name i had i had never heard before reading uh your article and and learning about some of the research you've been doing so it's it's an important story and i think it's i think it's one that a lot of people are going to be interested in horn players and 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 non-horn players just because this is a side of american history that we just don't really get to talk about we just we don't yeah and some of that is tied to our own um you know at some point the history of the horn went like concert horn one way, hunting horn another way, and that we just stopped viewing them as equal parts of our history. Mm-hmm. But when you look at, um, especially in in Great Britain and England, those two were so synonymous up mm-hmm. until the 19th century. You had... Um, Cato, who I, I think a lot of us have heard of Cato, but if you haven't, Cato was the huntsman to the Prince of Wales, who was the, um, he was the father of George III, who was Mad King George, as we, mm-hmm. we call him. Um, so Cato was actually passed on to, to George III as well. So Cato was um, a huntsman of African descent who was well known as the best hornblower in all of of England. And he is that, I write about this in in the article a little bit as well, that he really, really represents that that transitional phase of being both a huntsman and a concert horn player. there's, there's, you know, a little part of me that wants to think that Washington had intended for William Lee to assume that role in the colonies because Washington was, um, oh gosh, to put it, to put it kindly, he was very aspirational and he really, yeah. Right. You, th- that's mentioned in your article. Uh, he was an as- uh, purchased aspirationally. He, he bought things yes. that would sort of lend him the trappings of the aristocracy or something like that. Yeah. Yep. And that was beyond his, his purchasing, just the way that he presented himself. He, he wanted, even before he was president, he really um, viewed himself as being an, um, quote, American aristocrat, mm-hmm. you know, for better or worse. Um, right. Yeah. And I can... think it's, I was going to say, I, it's important. And I, I talk about this with uh, my music history students. I mean, all of this is wrapped up in like feelings of patriotism and citizenship and all of this stuff. And I think it's really important. And I tell my students, look, 
we need to learn about the whole person. There's the myth of some of these historic figures, and then there's what really happened. And I think it's it's incredibly important as as Americans, we should learn about our history, whatever that is. Um, and you know, this is obviously it's the International Horn Society, but we're talking about your article, which which deals with uh, George Washington and and mm-hmm. what so and and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're throwing out everything related to these figures. They were important people in the history of our country, but they were people just like anybody else. They they were whole people. They weren't you know one dimensional. I think I think we do a disservice historically speaking if we don't try to get the whole picture. Definitely. Um, yeah, I'm, George Washington was not without flaws. Um, he, he had a lot of the same flaws as other men of his, um, you know, who sat on the same socioeconomic, quote, level, if you want to say, sure. as he did. Um, and he, I, you know, we can't ignore the fact that he could have abolished slavery I mean, that he, he had that power. He could have just gotten rid of it. Um, and he didn't for a multitude of reasons. And he, you know, what he's written in letters pretty much outlines a, um, an economic reason. Mm-hmm. But you, can, you can't argue with the fact that he and his wife owned hundreds of enslaved people. Right. Yeah. And it it kind of comes down to us of how we how we kind of unpack that and disentangle it with our our the myth of these historic figures. I mean, we do the same thing with Beethoven, like Beethoven definitely had his flaws. (laughs) That's for sure. And yet, you know, like musically, we put him up on this pedestal um, and that that's something that's kind of there's been a reckoning in those terms as well uh, in, in modern musicology. But no, it's I, I think it's fascinating. Um, stepping back just a little bit, little bit I, two, two questions came to mind as you were talking um, about what, what you've been up to. That's amazing that the Delaware Symphony is still giving performances. Yeah. How, yeah. how was how was that? Is that like a live stream or do you, are you able to have an audience? So we're not going to have an audience. We're recording our concert um, on Friday evening, we're all going to, you know, it's going to be as though we're giving a live concert mm-hmm. and then the concert is going to be um, broadcast on Tuesday so that I guess they have a couple days to clean it up and make sure that the mm-hmm. everything works and that they have multiple cameras and, um, you know, that there's not a big chunk of audio missing somewhere or, um, but That's this is really the first. Fast- that's really fast turnaround though to get it's very fast. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the full, uh, the full orchestra and it's the first time that the full orchestra is going to have been together in a year. So it's very, very exciting. Um, they've had a couple chamber concerts, but I, I haven't been involved in those, mm-hmm. but have you had rehearsal yet? <gasps> yep. We had one yesterday. Oh, I bet that was amazing. It was Just, incredible. It yeah. was I mean, it was tough. We're all in all of the winds and brass. We're all in our own plexiglass. Sure. Like kind of like a little pod. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to hear my, my principal horn. And I'm like, I know I'm behind. I'm so sorry. But right. yeah. Right. So I was joking that it's the first time since I've been in, in band that I feel like I have to play 
before the down you know the downbeat right. we're so used to playing on the up sure. but yeah um but it's been great it's been really really cool um yeah, it's the third time for me since the beginning of March that I'm playing with other people other than my husband. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was... certainly after all of this is over, um, I certainly hope that we we don't forget what this feeling was like of just feeling so separated from our musical colleagues and then, you know, friends and loved ones that aren't in our immediate bubble Um you know, I hope we, I hope we learn not to take certain things for granted. <laughs> yeah. For yeah, sure. for sure. Oh, um, well, and just and thinking about my students and, you know, trying it, how to serve them, how best to serve them when I'm not allowed to have them uh, in person, they're not allowed to be not just with each other, but I'm not allowed to be in the same space as them. Right. So how do I, how do I best serve them so that it I don't <laughs> increase the, uh, or add to the zoom fatigue yeah. and yeah so it's you know it's it's been a really interesting question for all of us i don't right. know that i have an answer that's <laughs> unique to anyone else but i get the sense that a lot of us are kind of in survival mode at this point and um yeah. you know i'm i'm not obviously not doing as much gigging and performing but man i'm still exhausted at the end of the day it's <laughs> yeah it's uh but you know the the one of the bright sides is i i do get to spend a lot more time with my family get to to play with my son at the end of every school day and so i don't have to drive a couple of hours away to a rehearsal and be back late at night and I, i'm not i'm not taking that for granted because that was certainly a big part of my life as as a musician but trying to see the silver lining here is that I'm, I, I am getting to spend a lot of cherished moments with, with my loved ones. So, um, yeah. But, uh, the other question I was, uh, that, that came to mind was, so was you, you mentioned you were kind of splitting time between, um, temple and, and Philadelphia and then being at UVA. So was this research part of your, part of your, your doctoral, your doctoral work then? Yeah, um, okay. it it ended up being my um, my monograph. Okay. Um, yeah, so my monograph was a sort of history and critique of um, the representation of American horn players of African and Creole descent, sort of in music history, how we have seen them or not seen them, rather, mm -hmm. um, and then also trying to uncover and redress identities of earlier horn players. So mm -hmm. um, William Lee, as well as, um, so two, two of the the most well-known slave narratives are from a man called Olauda Equiano and another man called John Merritt. And they are both horn players. It's just wow. remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, reading those narratives and again, sort of putting together, putting them in history and saying like, okay, well, if Equiano was in London and lived in this neighborhood during these years, then it's highly likely that he knew Ignatius Sancho and that the, the horn parts that Sancho was writing were very likely maybe not written with Equiano in mind, but, but maybe they were. And Equiano possibly played these parts and you know putting that together mm -hmm. um an interesting puzzle um and yeah so from there going to francis johnson who um 
is sort of the grandfather of the brass band movement and also of the um, the African-American brass band tradition. So did you find when you started doing this research, were there resources that were particularly helpful or did you have to like really dig and dig to, to try to, to uncover some of this information? I, I did a ton, a ton of uh, research just using the Library of Congress's website. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, I, I suppose I could have, I mean, it's not that far away. It's only two hours from, from UVA, but it was significantly easier to do it online than to right. go up to the Library of Congress. Right. Um, and then there were a lot of turn of the 20th century publications about um, brass bands mm -hmm. and sort of looking at the, the history of the brass band. And then the, um, the David Whitwell books about when band history that was all really helpful with as far as um, Francis Johnson and the okay. the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, but, or I should say not about Francis Johnson, but about the, the history of the wind band in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, with Francis Johnson, there was an album. It's a brass. Oh, the chestnut, chestnut brass. Chestnut oh yeah. Brass. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They had an album of Francis Johnson's music and the liner notes okay. of that album were like, that was just told me everywhere to look. Oh, um, great. And yeah. I believe that was Jay Crush as the tuba okay. player. I believe that was his brainchild was that album and that, that helped. And then there was um, the library company of Philadelphia had a lot of resources or not a lot. No one has a lot of resources on any of these things, but the Library Company of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania had some resources okay. about Francis Johnson. Um, Olavide Equiano and John Merritt was their narratives. That mm -hmm. was that was it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, some scholarly articles um, about the uh, the the role of the slave narrative in african-american literature mm -hmm. um, and henry lewis gates of course he's written mm -hmm. a lot and um if you don't know who henry lewis gates is he has an incredible series on pbs about um well several series on pbs about african-american history going back to reconstruction i think reconstruction is the most recent one that's been on um, and William Lee really was, I, I um, just spent many, many, many hours at Mount Vernon with mm -hmm. the associate, associate curator there mm -hmm. who um, she curated the exhibit. The current exhibit at Mount Vernon is um, about the enslaved people there. Okay. So she was able to, to help me. But um, really everything with William Lee was was through Mount Vernon. Everything through uh, with Francis Johnson was the those two Philadelphia resources. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, yeah, Oluda Equiano and John Merritt were their narratives. And then once I got into the 20th century, then um, there was a lot more documentation. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, one of the most frustrating things about my research was that 
prior to World War One, race was not documented in military records. So you would know that if if someone was in what what was called the United States Colored Troops, that those would have been a person of African or Creole descent, uh-huh. um, unless they were an officer, then the officers were white. Um, but in the bands. Um, we didn't know what instrument they played. You didn't know the fifers and drummers because fifers and drummers were oftentimes um, people of color. So mm. we don't we don't know what their race was. Um, but there are some really interesting photographs that survive from the Civil War. Um, not many, but some. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, French horns weren't really used at that point. It would have been mm. they would have been following the. The Dodworth instrumentation would have been like alto horn and tenor horn. Oh, okay. No, yeah. This is really fascinating. And it, it sounds like this is research that kind of extends beyond one person, you know, that, oh, oh yeah. you know, where, yeah. wherever, wherever you go with your research, somebody needs to pick this up at some point and continue. Cause there's a whole, there's a parallel history here that we need to fill in some of these gaps to have, to have the whole picture. Yeah, I'm I'm working on my prospectus now to send out to to publishers because there's just so much information that needs to to be shared. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish that I had known this earlier. I think that it would certainly inform. Well, um for example, the um the Billy Strayhorn suite mm-hmm. that was yeah. recently published that I did this sort of viral Facebook campaign that was yeah. let's get this this piece published and honestly I expected it to take a year and it took two days it was unbelievable mm-hmm. um, but you know the knowing what I know about that piece makes it incredibly powerful and important to 20th century music history not mm-hmm. just horn history but mm-hmm. music history and um and we've spoken about my uh, co-authoring something with Willie Ruff about mm-hmm. the piece for for the horn call, and I think that it's so important that before anyone performs it, before anyone attempts to learn the piece, mm-hmm. that they come to it with the perspective of this was written by Billy Strayhorn on his deathbed. It was the last piece that he wrote, oh, and I he didn't chose know that. Yep, yeah. yep. It was he wrote it most of it from the hospital and um he would i shouldn't say most of it he wrote a good part of it from the hospital and he would get on the phone with duke ellington and duke he and duke had this really symbiotic relationship um Mm -hmm. and yeah there's just there's a ton to to go into about about the two of them um but it's it's a very autobiographical piece and it's okay. incredibly personal to Willie Ruff as well because mm-hmm. he he was good friends with Strayhorn and Duke Ellington and he was the recipient of this piece mm-hmm. you know he got to be the person that that performed Strayhorn's arguably his most intimate piece of music mm-hmm. um, so it's important that we that all of us horn players come to it with that knowledge mm-hmm as well as to perform it as a straight classical horn, you know, you can't play it like you play Beethoven. You can't play right. it like you play 
Carabini. You can't play it. Like you play even John Williams. You have to, right. you have to study Strayhorn and Strayhorn's right. vernacular. And I'm not saying at all that I am a, an expert in that I am, you know, a nerdy horn player, just like all of us, <laughs> but <laughs> I shouldn't say all of us, but um, to, to at least do that homework of the style mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's not it's not the same as big band. It's not the same as um, Stan Kenton. It's oh, not, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. it really is this. It, it's it's a very particular style. It's kind of and introspective the, listening to and you can you can hear the recording yeah. on YouTube and uh, and kind of stepping back just a little bit in case um, in case somebody's not aware. So this was a piece that was previously unpublished, but it was in the Strayhorn library uh, through through Hal Leonard. Right. And you organized a uh, a campaign to try to get a published version available that people could buy and to which the publisher said, well, is anybody interested? We don't think anybody's interested in buying it. And so you put out a call basically saying, if you are interested at all in this piece, please contact the Strayhorn Library Foundation and tell them you're, you're interested in the piece. And within, like you said, a matter of a few days, they were saying, okay, we've, we've heard enough. We'll do it. Just, you know, quit, quit emailing us. Um, so that was a tremendous response. And I, you know, it's incredibly reasonably priced. I was, you know, I was, I committed to buy. I was like, yeah, I need to own this piece. It's important historically. Um, even if I can't, you know, I'd like to try to play it one day. I'll, I'll have to certainly do some practicing in that style, but, um, yeah, it's it was it was a really cool uh, outcome, especially in this time of feeling frustrated about not being able to perform as much as we had been. Even something as simple as teaching a private lesson, which we can, you know, those of us that have been doing it for a while, it's like we, we get used to the rhythms of that. And now we have to to do it in such a different way. I think that was certainly a bright spot in, in all of this. Yeah, it was a very interesting process, that's for sure. My colleague here at UVA in the history department, who um, is who had actually done his undergrad degree at CCM with Mike Hatfield, as okay. he was a, a horn player, mm -hmm. and then um, uh, went to Yale for history, and now teaches in the history department here, studying the, um, the African-American diaspora. And he approached me saying, you know, I've would love to get my hands on this Billy Strayhorn piece. Do you know anything about it? And I said, well, you know, it's notoriously locked up in the, mm. the library of Congress. And, and there are so many people who've been trying to get a hold of it for years. And I think it's a lost cause. And um, he tweeted to them and just said, I want to get my hands on this piece. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you know, there just isn't, there's not a, a demand for this piece. If you mm -hmm. can show that there's a demand. And he said, oh, well, hmm. And then he said, Katie, do you think there's a demand for this? And I said, yes, I very mm -hmm. much do. And then, as you said, it was a way of staying sane, I guess, within mm -hmm. the, the pandemic is to find, for, for me, you know, a, a social goal within the Horn Society of saying, you know, everyone deserves to find representation of themselves within our community. Um, and some of that comes from being a woman and um, not historically not seeing myself represented until pretty recently. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, people of color 
there is significantly less in women of color, especially in my research. I was not terribly surprised, but I guess disappointed to see that um, the first women of color that I, I found represented in horn history were two horn players in Ebony magazine in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Nicole Cash mm-hmm. and she really, you know, uh, she really bears the the burden of that mm-hmm. um yeah the legacy and and the burden mm-hmm. so um and i say that without having i've spoken to her very briefly so i don't want to mm-hmm. sp- speak for her in any way mm-hmm. but no that's I, I i think all of this is important work and it's you know it's all part of just again this this is a massive world the you know being a horn player being a musician is encompasses a lot of things and i think that's kind of where we are going with the international horn society is to try to get as many feelers out there and and try to hear as many stories and and give a platform to as many stories as we can i mean if you're a horn player you can be in the ihs that's basically the requirement and so i i think that's that's a great thing. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, kind of p- pivoting a little bit here, but not really, is you mentioned, um, you know, women brass players and you were a founding member of Seraph Brass. Is that, yeah. is that something you want to maybe share a little bit about or some, some, some sure. fond, fond memories of, of being in that group, how it got started? It wasn't necessarily about being women. It was about being great players who are women. Mm-hmm. And then also um, supporting other women through commissions. And that mm-hmm. was something that was very near and dear to my heart. And I think is, you know, as, as is evident from their success, Seraph's success, it still is very important to, to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I was, <laughs> I think most of us, or not most of us, a lot of American horn players can say that they probably fell in love with the horn through recordings of Empire Brass or Canadian Brass. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was Canadian Brass came to um, a town close to mine and they played at a high school. They played a free show at a high school mm-hmm. and my dad took me and I, I can't remember if I was in fifth or sixth grade, but I had my, I had just started playing and I had my, uh, my part, you know, my Canadian mm-hmm. Brass, favorites my horn french horn book and i was so scared but i made myself go and introduce myself to david ohanian afterward Uh. he signed my book and i still have it and i was just like i can't believe anyone can play the horn like that (laughs) you know i was like struggling to be able to play a third space c and david ohanian is doing these gymnastics on the instrument um but yeah, to me, brass quintet was all always about about the music and about how visible the ensemble is to young to younger audiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, you know that's always been foundational to Seraph's um, to mission to the Seraph's mission. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, there were a lot of fun memories in there. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. It must be nice yeah. to kind of, you know, even even if you're not a part of the group anymore, to kind of know that you're a part of that story and, you know, yeah. their, their successes you have a part in just because of your association from the beginning. 
when I when I look out at women principal horn players in in big orchestras, mm-hmm. and I, I you know Jennifer Montone who um, was one of my teachers at Temple, Jen and mm-hmm. Jeff Lang were my teachers at Temple, um, and she's also a, a, a very very good friend. But I, I think that what she's been able to do is nothing short of miraculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean there aren't a lot of women who who hold principal positions and have children and are able to also teach at Curtis and Juilliard and and you right. know and that's right. um yeah yeah so well, again this is yeah well and I think you should count yourself among this group I think it's so fantastic now though that young women horn players can look and they don't have to dig too terribly far though to find Jen Montone, to find you, to find Elizabeth Frymouth or yeah. Gail Williams or Freudis. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done, obviously, but it's, I, I, I would like to think it's getting better. I hope it's getting better. I obviously can't speak to it from your perspective or, or anybody's but my own, but I, I, I want to try to help. Um, there are so many things that, you know, we, we don't even think to ask because we don't know. And <laughs> we, we, we have to just be open to someone explaining, well, this is what it's like from my perspective and just be open to that. And so you learn, you learn so much by just kind of listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, that's not, yeah, I don't mean at all to diminish you know, the experiences of, of, of anyone else. I just, I personally happen to find Jennifer extremely um, inspiring. But no, a- my, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. My aunt is the oboe professor at the University of Michigan. And she, gosh, it must have been maybe not 20 years ago, but at least 15 years ago when she, the, she gave a, a panel discussion or was on a panel at IDRS about, um, about, having a family and, and, and having a career and how do you, how do you balance everything? And I remember my dad saying, well, that's just, I, why would anyone want to want to hear about that? Just like, Oh my gosh, you are showing that you're a man and that you're of a different generation. And it's sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. No. And it is important to, yeah, there, there are so many generational differences. There are gender differences. Um, And again, you know, it, I think it just boils down to being open to hearing about what someone else's perspective is. But, oh, and yeah. I was also going to mention you have you have a YouTube video um, talking about your research and kind of giving an overview about that. Yeah, I do. It's um, it's on my YouTube channel. It's Katie Ambrose Horn, maybe. <laughs> I'll put a, I'll put a link to it in the, okay. the show in the the episode highlights. Um, Great. Because that, that's a great video for like a studio class if you're looking for uh, a very interesting and important topic that maybe doesn't always come up. I mean, when was the valve invented? Sure, we, we can, we can yeah. talk about that all day long. But this is also an interesting topic, and there's not a ton of resources out there about it. So um, I'm going to put that in my notes right now, link to YouTube video. And I've also... Anyone who is interested, I um, have been giving a lot of guest lectures, and um, I'm not taking any um, any fee from that. So any any universities that have paid me, that's going directly to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, 
So I think I gave 13 guest lectures last semester in the fall semester. And it's essentially the same video, but I, I, I've done up to an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, just putting a plug out there, feel free to, to contact me if, if anybody wants a longer version of that, of that video, um, because they're really, it really, that video is essentially my dissertation defense, mm -hmm. um, which is, again, it's 20 minutes. It's a, it's a good overview, but mm -hmm. it doesn't really get into the nuts and bolts of anything. Mm -hmm. um, well, and if they have you in, per well, virtually, uh, but live, yeah. they, they've got the ability to ask you questions and to do some follow up. Yeah. And I think that that's an important part of this too. Thank you again, Katie. Thank you so much for uh, giving so freely of your time today to talk about your research and all the other amazing things you've been up to. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been great.